benefit is going to be uh, twofold. Hopefully, well, hopefully there will be a benefit. Hopefully, we'll be able to learn something together. But uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different items uh, highlighted in this particular Talmud text that uh, that Dan said. Dan, if you didn't hear it, if you didn't get the email, whatever, we're going to discuss it very thoroughly. But I think even more, perhaps even more than that, the benefit could be derived in just the experience of actually analyzing um, um, uh, what's the thing that surgeons do? <coughs> surgeons, they... Uh, dissecting, thank you, thank you. Dissecting a piece of Talmud because, uh, as we all know, the Talmud is a, is a series of books. I don't know how many books. How many books are you talking about with the Talmud? 39. Well, 39 or 63, depends how you count them. Yeah, so it's an enormous, enormous... Uh, corpus of of literature that that we have that is remarkably uh, more than fifteen hundred years old. So it's it's enormously old, yet in, just incredible in its scope and its breadth and its, its depth in in every way possible. And I I uh, hypothesized recently that there's more people in the world studying Talmud from pure scholarly. Purposes than any other piece of uh, of of wisdom. So it was more scholarly, meaning what? Yeah, as opposed to doing it to get your to get your degree or something like that, or to, to you learn medicine to get to you know to become a doctor. You learn law to become a lawyer. You know, to get licensed or whatever, just for pure scholarly purposes or for uh, you know for for scholarship or for research purposes. More people studying Talmud. So it's it's remarkable how it lasted that long. Uh, and how till you know till this day there's you know hundreds of thousands of people that are studying it every day. Um, and when you study Talmud, and the more the more you kind of get your feet wet, you'll notice that there's really two kind of it's really it's a mixture of two kinds of study. Number one, you have halacha. Number two, you have agadata. Uh, what we're going to focus on today is agadata. Is a, a particular agadic piece, just. Two lines from the Talmud in Brachos, which happens to be the very first <coughs> book of the Talmud. Now, the, uh, the, the, this is the point I want to convey because you'll, you'll see why it's important. I'm not belaboring the point. Talmud is basically all of Jewish law, and Jewish law covers every p- imaginable aspect of, of 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 law, of civil, of criminal, of of ritual r- ritual law. I mean, we have law covering properly law. There's Pages upon pages of documents, uh, books upon books written about property law, and this is a very you know this is and you you look at at, at you you look at the um, the laws regarding property law, and it's just remarkable how it's so easily translatable to today. You know, just you have two neighbors, and uh, am I allowed to do something that's going to inhibit uh, your your? Am I allowed to build a, a window that looks into your pool, or am I allowed to uh, plant a fence, uh, plant a tree right next to your fence, and it's going to ruin your crops? Or uh, if the if a wall separating two neighbors it falls down, who has to pay for it? Who gets to keep the the, the stone? Like very practical very tangible kind of discussion about law. What does the Jewish law say about that? Finding lost items, all kinds of interpersonal damages, uh, etc. Now, when you learn that, you'll notice how fastidious the Talmud is in trying to clarify or to give over the law as clearly as possible. It talks about hypotheticals that you won't even imagine. Hypotheticals uh, some of them like blow your mind, like these hypotheticals that will come up with, because it's trying trying to teach you the principles. 
So even if you're like, you read this, like, did this really ever happen? Like, I talked about the one, the one that came up the top of my head. I don't want to share. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, why not? This is the adult class, right? So there's this. Uh, oh gosh, there's this. Uh, I should say, right? Um, there's this. Huh? With the woman or a man? Both. That's. Uh, uh, it's talking about uh, a certain kind of halachic change that is going to happen. Uh, during intercourse, okay, and it's going and it, it mentions that it doesn't it doesn't matter whether or not it's done intentionally or willfully or or intentionally or done by mistake or done and the, Thomas says how can it possibly happen by mistake? So there's this whole debate as to whether or not uh, oh gosh this is what's discussed in the Talmud like this is just without any uh, there's no sugar coating whatsoever. Uh, either way, has it paints this image of some man on a rooftop who just falls down by mistake, and somehow that's that, like you read that <laughs> man on the rooftop that happens to be uh, it's trying to create a, a, a situation where it's just you know anyhow that's like an example of my head. I apologize for the uh, uncouthness. Either way, that's what it does because when it's trying to teach you law, it's trying to teach you law. And it will go to very great lengths to make it as clear as possible. It will discuss every possibility. It will analyze every aspect. It will, it will, it will uh, uh, give you all the exceptions. It will give you all the sources. It will give you everything you need to know. Now, it may be a lot, but it will give it all there. It may be pages upon pages and, and commentaries and just to a- analyze what the basic text even means. But eventually you get it if you, if you study it correctly. Now, that so is law. That is halakha, yes. Do we get any, ever see anything of... Violates the don't add to or detract from. Yeah, of course. That's that, that's a, that's a Torah. That's a Torah verse. Even that's a verse three times the Torah. I know that's, but with this Talmud business, with their interpretation. No, it's not interpretations. No, uh, according to the uh, the um, the tradition, the Talmud is just writing down what was the oral tradition already then, what they learned from their teachers, and they had to write it down. We'll get to in the next history class. We'll talk about. We already talked about it in the previous history class. We'll talk about why the necessity for writing it down because it became unviable to be uh, transmitted orally only. You know, but it was a way of life coupled with the way of, 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 of a, a systemized method of instruction um, where there was dedicated students and dedicated teachers and, and proper infrastructure and, and you know, a certain, certain measure of, of peace uh, on, and stability, uh, political, and you know, the Jews were relatively... Stable and it was, it was possible. They had to write it down because otherwise the Jews would have forgotten the Torah. So when you have a discussion about uh, uh, any particular law, the assumption is, or the argument is, uh, that this is the actual law that Moses taught the Jewish people. That's the interpretation of the law, of, of the written law that is, the Torah. The Torah says the laws of finding a lost object and the corresponding Talmudical, uh, all, all the particular insights, all those things were taught by Moses. That's been the traditional perspective. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. Is it possible that there was some mistake in, in, in transmission? That's a debate that we could talk about. That. I have a lot to say about that. Either way, that is law. We st- the vast majority of Talmud is that kind of law. It takes a particular subject. Uh, we have uh, you know, 63 books, so it basically covers all, 
it's like 10 or 15 agricultural ones, all the agricultural laws, laws relating to holidays, interpersonal laws, marriage and divorce laws, uh, laws regarding sacrifices in the temple, purity and impurity, etc., etc. Every aspect of Torah is discussed and laws are analyzed um, uh, to their most finest point. So when was the last entries made in the Talmud? When, when, and when was it decided like, to close it off? Like we're not accepting any more submissions? Yeah, so it was a collaborative effort, uh, more than a thousand rabbis, uh, over about 20 years to write down the Mishnah. We say Talmud, it's typically, it's typically um, broken down into two parts. You have the Mishnah, and then you have the what's called the Gemara, the Talmud, but it's kind of all bunched together today. Um, it's, it was a process over about 300 years, starting with the Mishnah. Uh, and ending about the year 500. That's the years. We're, that's roughly the year with the exact date. I don't know if we know for sure. Uh, we know the names of the people: Ravina, Rav Ashi, and the, a fellow by the name of Mar Baravashi. Those are the, those are the codifiers. But it was a collaborative effort. It wasn't just one guy on a mission. You know, it was the you know the collective leadership of the people realizing that this had to happen and doing uh, the best job that they can in actually assembling all the information, writing it down in the most coherent way possible. Editing it, you know, we actually have, uh, there's a few books in the Talmud, uh, Nazir and Nidarim. Nidarim talk about vows, like a, a vow that you make. Uh, the Torah talks about when someone promises to do something, uh, has a certain vow. There's di- three different kinds of vows, but when someone has a vow to do something, they're obligated to do so. Uh, so there's a book about that called Nidarim. There's a book about Nazir, which is also a similar thing. That's a vow to become a Nazir, which is someone who refrains from wine and from cutting their hair and from coming in contact with dead people for a minimum of 30 days. Uh, Those two things, the Talmud itself writes that it wasn't edited a third time. Uh, Therefore, it's a little bit bit incongruent to the rest of the Talmud, like the style, but but, uh, the style is a little bit different. uh, But, uh, you know, it, it went through two series of editing and making sure it's uniform with the rest of the Talmud, but what didn't have that third round. So you see it's a little bit different. But otherwise, for the rest of the Talmud, we kind of have uniformity. We have the way things are written, the way they're presented. The lingo uses all the same. It's all uniform across all 2,711 pages. Yeah? So, okay, uh, I don't want to get off track, but I just have one question here. So, at what point was it decided we're done? You know, we're not accepting any, any more... Because obviously, things like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and all of those uh, changes in human history occurred after the Talmud was written, and there could have been scholars and rabbis and others that would have had things and volumes to add to it, but were not able to. So that's that's So the question assumes that there hasn't been any scholarship since then. You know, and remember we, we talked about Maimonides. You know, we, we quoted that he, in his introduction to his major book, series of 14 books of Jewish law, uh, he said this is the book of all books, book to end all books. And today, 2014, you cannot go one week without a new book being published as a commentary on the Rambam. Not a single week goes by. So the Torah is very dynamic, and it's remarkable that even though uh, we, have, um, we have kind of a finalized version of Bible, a finalized version of the Mishnah, and those things that can't be changed, a finalized version of the Talmud, there's still so much room for scholarship. You know, just myself, I'm not much of a scholar, but I've written tons and tons and tons of stuff because there's still so much more. The deeper you go, the more the more the the, the room the, there's room for independent thought, for innovative ideas, for 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 new analyses. It's fantastic. It's but like none of those none of those works 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's it's working within it's working within the framework, within the framework of the Talmud. The Talmud covered all for what it was trying to do. It left a lot of room for scholarship, and that's what we have today. And there's still a fantastic amount of scholarship. It's remarkable. Tens of thousands of books being published a year. Fantastic. Okay, so that's uh, the vast majority of Talmud. It's halacha. We're trying to reveal what the law is, and then you have Agadita. And I, you read, and if you if you're just just reading through the Talmud once, and it'll it'll pop out, and you're like, "What is going on over here?" Right? You'll see things that you, you'll it has different lingos, it has a different method of instruction, and it's talking about different topics, and the entire way it goes about uh, uh, presenting information is totally different. Now, what's Agarata? It's the philosophical aspects of the Torah. It's the ethical. Uh, it's uh, it's it's kind of the ideas that aren't law, but kind of Perspective, philosophy, ways of behavior, right? insights into the kind of hidden parts of the Torah. And those things, the exact opposite method was employed where we're not trying to make it as clear as possible, but we're trying to make it as concealed as possible, as difficult to understand as possible, as, the, as hard. And that's why it's frequently masked in the form of parables. You have a story. And the story is a fantastic story about a guy who was on a horse who's traveling down a river and meets the man. He says, why are you so ugly? Is everyone in your town that ugly? And the guy says, oh, talk to God who created me. And he says, oh, get, get, you know, all these, like, these, these illustrations, or these um, um, uh, analogies. And it's like, what does it mean? He's, why does it tell that he's riding on a, on a donkey? All those, every aspect of the information is important, but you don't know what it means. You know, it describes a person who's traveling and it's dark and he's scared of this and he's scared of, he's scared of, he's scared of burglars and, and he's scared of, of, of animals, he's scared of tripping and then, oh, and then he gets a candle and then he avoids this, and he, right? All the, and like, and you have to know what these things mean. And he uses code words that you have no idea what they mean. And it sometimes takes a particular lesson and chops it into three and puts one of this part of the Talmud, one of that part of the Talmud, one of the third part of the Talmud. And you'll have no idea unless you're a scholar. The idea being that what the what the what the architects of the Talmud wanted was that the secrets of the Torah ought not to be dispensed like gumballs. Right? We don't just give out secrets. It's not so. How do they do that? How do you write the secrets? How do you write it in a way that only the people that really deserve to understand them will understand? Right. That's what they tried to do, and I, in my view, they did it very successfully. But <laughs> why? What was the purpose? Yeah. Why, would, why would they not want God's wisdom to be disseminated in a way that everyone can digest? Well, they want, they want people to earn it. They want people to understand it. They want people to... You know, we talk about... Uh, I mentioned this a few times, uh, I think, before. Uh, we talk about uh, Kabbalah. I haven't heard, heard of the term Kabbalah. It's like a very popular... You know, Kabbalah. Oh, the, the Red Streams, and the Kabbalah Center, and Madonna, right? All that, all that jazz. Now... The word Kabbalah means, what does the word Kabbalah mean? Who knows what the word Kabbalah means? To know. Receiving. Receiving. And the idea being is that the Kabbalah, what we call the mystical part of the Torah, the sodot, the hidden aspects of the Torah, those things are something that you receive, right? Those things aren't written down. Those things are, you meant to receive it from a teacher because it's, it's, it, that's the last vestige of complete oral Torah. And it's it's the hidden it's, it's it's the deepest of the deep ideas, and we don't want to give it out to people that don't even have a basic understanding or basic basic background in Jewish learning. It's not meant for them. 
And when they do have access to it, they twist it and, and, they, and they think that they understand it fully. And therefore they say, oh, and they interpret it and they, they misrepresent it as well. Yeah, so that's the he's supposed to be four years old, this and that. I don't know about that. What I know is that my grandfather always said we have no, we don't take, we don't, we don't spend any time with dealing with the hidden aspects of the Torah. Right? Why? Because it doesn't do any good for us. It doesn't do any good for us. And I, I think that agarata and these ideas in the wrong hands or in maybe immature, not immature in that sense, but kind of hands that aren't ready for it, they won't know what to do with it. It won't do any good for them. And they can misrepresent it. They can misrepresent it, and, and, and it's the kind of thing where you grow into it. And when you grow into it, then it makes an impact on you. If it was just hand-delivered, spoon-fed to you, you probably wouldn't have the same kind of uh, uh, benefit from it than you would have had if you kind of let it develop within you. Uh, when I'm, when I, the idea I'm saying, the, the method that I just described of letting idea develop was my grandfather says. He says, he says that the way to understand what's called a Maimur Chazal, a statement of Chazal, an Agadic teaching, is not to just learn it and try to learn it and try to understand it. Because if you just come head on with it, you won't understand it. It's deliberately designed to make you understand by people that are much more intelligent than you. <laughs> You're not going to understand it. right? What you have to do is kind of Live with it, what he described. You basically take the idea and let it, let it just percolate and germinate within you. And then eventually, uh, hopefully, over the course of months, years even, over the course of years even, you'll de- it'll develop into idea. And then it'll be a foundational aspect of your, of your, of your worldview. And then, it, and then it really builds who you are from learning the Talmud statement. So the benefit is, is much greater. You know, my, my grandfather quoted from his teacher. He said that... Um, it was in the great yeshiva in, in Poland, Mir Yeshiva, which is yeshiva that I uh, spent in, right now moved to Israel, no, no longer in Poland. It's the only yeshiva in Europe that survived the war completely intact. The entire yeshiva made their way east and w- was five years in Shanghai. It's a remarkable story how the entire, the entire, they all got visas somehow, the entire yeshiva in its entirety wasn't disrupted. So his teacher in in the mirror when Inzman was still in Poland in 1936, 1935, something or somewhere around there. So there was this guy in the yeshiva who had come up with this incredible Torah insight and was basically like buzzing. Like the whole yeshiva was buzzing about this idea uh, or this discourse that this that this guy gave with this novel Torah insight. So Rabbi Rucham, who was my, my grandfather's Rebbe, my grandfather's teacher, he went over to him and said to him, um, how long did you spend preparing, working on this on this on this idea, on this discourse that, that the whole yeshiva is buzzing about. He says, five hours. Oh, five hours. He says, tell me, the last, most recent uh, um, lecture that I gave, how long do you think I spent on it? How, how long? Do you? He says, oh, probably about the same thing, about five hours. He said to him, it wasn't five hours. It wasn't five days. It was five months. It was five months. Five months I was developing this idea. So I'm, I'm telling the story because that's kind of an, an illustration of how to go about, uh, or ha- one method perhaps, of going about trying to uh, um, uh, unlock the secrets of, a, of an agotic statement uh, if you encounter one of them. Uh, and the one that we're going to stress today is one that I feel very fond of because I kind of was very bothered by this particular piece of time. It didn't make any sense to me. And over the course of time, I kind of gained some insight that hopefully we'll share today. Okay, after that introduction... Let's read the statement of the Talmud. I'll read it in Hebrew first. 
and then we'll read Linlash. Shlosha me'ein olam haba. Elohim, Shabbos, Shemesh, Tashmesh. Tashmesh demai. Ilim a Tashmesh amita hamitchash tachesh. Elo Tashmesh v'kavim. It's about, I don't know, 12 words. Three things are a measure of the world to come. And, and, and they are, number one, Shabbos. Number two, the sun. Number three, Tashmish. The word Tashmish is ambiguous. It can mean multiple things. So the Talmud says, which Tashmish are you talking about? If you say that it means uh, intercourse, then it can't be so because that weakens. That makes someone weak. Rather, it must mean removing one's bowels. That's what it says. That's the Talmud. That's it. And it goes on to some other thing. Right? And it talks about uh, three things are a measure of something else. That's all it says. And this is from Brachas 57b. If you happen to find a Talmud in English, you can read it. That's, that's all it says. I didn't add or subtract anything. And when you read this, a bunch of questions pop up. A few basic questions. What are we saying? There's three things that are a measure of the world to come. There's three things that are, what does that mean? What does the world to come mean? What does it mean that there's three things that are a measure of the world to come? Three things that are similar, that are alike, that are kind of a, a me'ain. Me'ain means it's, it's a measure. It's a, it's a little bit of. What does that mean? Right? What, is, what are we talking about when we say the world to come? That's a, that's a, you know, that, that, that is actually a, uh, those words don't appear anywhere in the Jewish Bible. Nowhere. Olam haba, which means olam means the world, like tikkun olam, fixing the world. Haba, the next world, the world to come. Versus olam hazet, this world. These are words that don't appear anywhere in the Jewish Bible. They appear uh, rather infrequently in in the uh, uh, in the you know the literature in, in in the Talmud. You know what is this thing and. And if it's so important, it's this whole world, well, why doesn't it not say it in, anywhere in the Bible? It seems like it's a fundamental, it's a fundamental part of, of, of Jewish philosophy. In fact, Maimonides in his 13 principles, one of, them is a, one of the 13 principles is, uh, is the world to come. So why is it not anywhere, why is it not anywhere in the Jewish Bible? Is it the Messianic age? No, the Messianic age is plenty, the, in the, plenty in the Jewish Bible. Okay. So that's a very good question. Oh no, oh no, oh no! In fact, there's a there's a Talmud that we're gonna uh, want another statement from elsewhere in the Talmud that we're going to bring that says as follows. I'll say it now because it's relevant now, but it'll be relevant later as well. All the prophets. You look at the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah, and they talk about this future time. Really good, right? Uh, uh, really good times. It's peace and prosperity and health and happiness for everyone. They foretell about this future time. It's be really good. All the prophets did not prophesize for the emot- for, uh, rather for the the emot- for the days of the, for the messianic era. All the good things that were told about in the future that's going to happen in the future is only for the messianic era. But for Olam Haba, but for the world to come. Ayin lo ra'ata, and I doesn't see it, only God sees it, and I can see it. So even the, pro- even the prophets, with their vision and their foresight and their scholarship and their piety and their insight and their wisdom, they couldn't see what the world to come is. And they, all they could see was what's going to be Messianic times. So yes, this distinct, uh, um, we call them epics, uh, or, or uh, eras, or uh, kind of phase, phases in time. One of them we call Lamazeh, 
And then the Messianic era is kind of very similar to Lama Z. It's just this world minus a few. Okay, so what's the world to come? How can we don't we don't we don't uh, we don't hear about it in the uh, uh, in the in the Bible? That's uh, uh, one question we would ask. Another question we would ask: What does it mean that something is presented as a measure of the world? What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean that it's a measure? It's a small part. It's mini mini world to come. It's like a, it's like the mini mini iPad iPad Mini. It's like oh, this is the world to come. This is just a smaller version. It's the same thing. It's just a smaller screen. Is that what it is? Uh, or not? What do you guys say? It is? It's a description. It's a description? Reflection. Reflection. It's a taste, okay. It's something like that. Remember, we just quoted uh, to Dan, even the prophets have no idea what the world to come is. Even they can't see it. Their eye can't see it. Only God can see it. So it's clearly not the same thing. It's clearly not experiences that we could experience the world to come in this world. Clearly not. What it's saying is that it's some sort of feeling. It's inkling. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a measure. We call it a measure. It's, there's some commonality between these three experiences where you can kind of have some sort of insight into what, what we're talking about. We're talking about this world to come. And lastly, oh, obviously... What is the commonality? What does is, what is the sun have to do with anything? That's obviously a basic question. What does Shabbos have to do with anything? What is, you know, removing the door to the bathroom? What does that have to do with anything? And um, lastly, the last question, my favorite question, is that if you actually analyze what we're saying here, we're, asking a, we're saying a statement, three things in the world to come, we give the names of the three items, and then we say the last item, well, what does it mean? It's an ambiguous noun. Does it mean this or does it mean that? Why does the Talmud not simplify it and say three things are, the, are a measure of the world to come? Shabbos, Shemesh, and Tashmish Kavim. Tell us which Tashmish we're talking about, and that's it. Why did they say Tashmish? They say, oh, Tashmish between multiple things. Is it this kind of Tashmish or that kind of Tashmish? Well, it can't be that kind of Tashmish because that makes you eat. It must be referring to that kind of Why Take out that whole dialogue. Take out the whole the, the whole discussion. Just tell us which which noun you're referring to. Say Tashmish and Kavim, that's it. Finito. You don't need to say any more. You like it? You like the questions? No, that's, that's all right. You're doing good. Keep I'm doing good. Thank you. Okay. So, um... You'll be great at that. So we have to figure out what they have in common, all three different things. Or not necessarily that they have in common, or maybe these are three elements where there's some commonality to a third, to a, to a, uh, to a third party, to the world to come, that is. Perhaps what we're saying is like this. Now, um, we're going to, we, our class here has a special affinity for Maimonides, right? We're gonna, we, we had a whole class discussing what Maimonides, so we're going to try to invoke a lot of what he wrote about the world to come as kind of a basis for our understanding of this idea. Olam uh, about world to come, Maimonides calls it Olam HaNeshama. What's so funny? Andrew, I'm anything? not going to say just keep going. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it to myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so Maimonides calls it Olam HaNeshamot, the world of souls. And the first thing that we know, uh, the first thing that we know about this world is that there's no physicality. We do have, from the other end of the Talmud, actually not from the other Talmud, but from uh, exactly... Forty and a half pages before this statement, we find the following statements. 
in the world to come, there's no eating, drinking, washing, anointing, sexual intercourse. What is there? The righteous sit with their crowns on their head, enjoying the radiance of the divine presence. Presence. So, first thing we're told about it, or one of the things that we're told about it, that this, it that there's a lack of spirit. There's a lack of physicality. There's no bodies. There's no bodily activities. It's some sort of immersion in this spiritual radiance. Okay, that's the first thing that we know about it. Now, for us to try to imagine a bodiless existence is very hard. It's very hard. We, our perspective, our way of seeing the world, our senses are all physical. They're all physical. Our interactions with everything, they're physical, right? Our, our, you know, even, even our, perhaps even our, our brain, for, brain, yeah, but, you know, our consciousness, we see it in a, you know, physical terms, you know? It's hard for us to imagine what it means that we have just a soul. Like, what are we? How do we exist? Like, what does that mean? You know, what is... What does that mean? What's an angel? I don't know what an angel is. Okay, so. They got wings. <laughs> but they don't, from what I've read, is that they don't eat either. That's absolutely yeah, true. There's, there's yeah, but. The angels, that's true. Female, so. That's exactly true. So, therefore, it's very hard for us to imagine it. And this is underscored by this, another statement in my mind. If I, I think I actually mentioned this point before. I'll actually read it inside now. To us, to try to understand or try to imagine what it's like to be just souls is basically trying to ask a blind person to imagine what color is. I've given that example. It's actually brought down from the Mamani. I'll read read this quote from the Mamani's. No, that just as the blind man cannot image color, as the deaf person cannot experience sounds, and as the eunuch cannot feel sexual desire... So too bodies cannot attain spiritual life. This is not an exact translation. This is a, Maimonides wrote this book in Arabic. It was translated to Hebrew. This is a translation that I pulled from the internet in English. It's actually a very good translation, but it's not like attained. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, perfect um, necessarily. Like fish who do not know what the element of fire, so are the delights of the spiritual world unknown in this material world. Spiritual delights do not come within our experience at all. It's not something we can experience. We enjoy only bodily pleasures, which come to us through our physical senses, such as the pleasure of eating, drinking, and sexual intercourse. Other levels of delight are not present in our experience. We neither recognize nor grasp them at first thought. They come to us only after great searching. So what he's telling us is that this idea of spiritual pleasure, spiritual existence, is something that's beyond really our perspective. It's, it's something like a, a blind person cannot really understand it. At the end, he throws in this last line, they come to us only after great searching. So that's basically opening up the door for some sort of interaction that we can have with this kind of experience uh, after great searching. But uh, the takeaway for us is that our senses do not link with our soul. If 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 I if I give you a little, if I, yeah, you feel that, right? Oh yes. You feel it. Why do you feel that? Because you have a sense. Right? The Almighty gave your body this heightened sense of awareness that when someone touches you, when you taste something, when you're hungry, what happens? Your stomach growls. If you're walking through the Sahara Desert and you haven't had water in five hours, your throat is parched and you're, you might be getting a little bit delirious. Right? If you eat something, it tastes good and you feel that. Right? If you're 
engaging in some sort of audiovisual uh, experience, you're watching television or you're watching your kids play soccer, right? you see it, it comes within you via your senses. Right? You're tasting something right now, right? It tastes, you feel it. That is what we are today. We're bodies first, souls second. We don't feel our souls. Well, we, we feel awkward doing mitzvahs because it's, 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 it doesn't make sense to our bodies. There's no benefit to our bodies when we shake a lulav. We had a little lulav shaking experience here. You shake a lulav and it, you do feel a little weird. Why? Because for your body, there's no measurable change. It doesn't make any sense to your body. For your body, you're just taking a bunch of, uh, a fr- uh, you're taking a fruit and a bunch of branches and you're shaking them and you hope no one's looking at you because it got a little weird. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's what the body, because that's the body's perspective. And doesn't do anything for the body. Doesn't. Uh, and we don't have an ability to tap into our souls or to experience what our soul feels and therefore we don't know that this is very valuable for our soul. Now, if things were flipped around, right? if things were flipped around, the first thing that would happen is that after 24 hours, most of humanity would die. Why? Because they would die of thirst. If you didn't feel the urge to have thirst, if you didn't feel that thirst, you probably would be dead. Probably. Thank God the Almighty created us with all these safety gaps that as our body needs things, right? we feel it. And therefore, we keep our body alive. We, have the, we survive because the Almighty gives us all these bodily But our soul is parallel to our body. We we're told that we have 365 uh, uh, sinews and, uh, and uh, 248 limbs and the corresponding amount of mitzvahs. 248 positive uh, mitzvahs and 365 negative mitzvahs corresponding to the limbs of the body. We're told additionally that there's spiritual limbs as well. And every and there's an exact mirror image kind of between the body and the soul. Right? The soul exists and it has it has kind of these elements, what we might call limbs, and they gain nourishment from the mitzvahs, just like our body gains nourishment from what we consume. Uh, you know, you eat and it gives you, or you, you consume oxygen. You have water and all those things. Your body breaks down all the the, the nutrients and the minerals and the vitamins and kind of gives life to your whole body. That exact parallel happens and hopefully will happen in our spiritual body as well, which is what we call our soul. We don't feel, we don't have a sensory connection to it and therefore it's kind of a foreign idea to us. In this world to come, we are just, we are just souls. We are just souls. We, we don't have that whole body, the whole, the whole body thing. And therefore, this reality is kind of hard for us to imagine. But that's what it is, basically. It's a, lo- it's a, it's a world where we don't have bodies. We don't, have, we don't do the body themes. We ha- we're just souls. It's the opportunity for, like we mentioned, uh, pleasure, like this spiritual pleasure. Uh, it's also the place for, it's reward and punishment, basically. It's, it's so, this, well, I got the second thing. It's this place for reward and punishment. Where we, as we we mentioned this a few times here, we don't believe that reward and punishment is uh, meted out in this world, right? There's no way that Hitler could have paid for all his evil in this world. It's not. It's not possible, you know. And if if you accept the idea of a soul, by definition, you're accepting the idea of reward and punishment in a different world when all uh, all rights can be wronged and all wrongs can be righted. Yes, Dan. So, the world to come is. After the Messianic era, when's the the resurrection part? Explain me this timeline. 
<laughs> okay. Resurrection, where you know, so. Um. So, I uh, I can try to explain the timeline, but I don't know for sure because I don't believe it says it anywhere explicitly. Um, it doesn't. It's, it, I, don't, I don't believe it says it anywhere explicitly what the exact time. It doesn't go out of its way to make it easier for us. Um. It seems like to me uh, that. Right now, we live in this world, basically. This world. Uh, we, have, we live on a planet. We live part of a solar system. We're in a galaxy. Right? We have bodies. Right? That's basically, we know what this world is, basically. Uh, at some point in time, there's going to be some sh- change to this world. A minor change most likely be a minor change. Um, where it's going to be that the idea of God is going to be ubiquitous in the world. I think we're already more than halfway home. This is the vast majority of the world. If you look at, if you take a snapshot of the world today versus a snapshot of the world maybe 2,000 years ago, it's remarkable how the vast majority of the world today has this idea of God, basically, the basic idea of God, um, in some sense, uh, uh, down pat. You know? So yes, the Christians have their kind of, uh, you know, their... Uh, forking, so to speak, of, of the idea, and the Muslims kind of have their application of that idea. And it's but but the idea of God has made tremendous inwards inroads, sorry, since the days of Abraham. You mean uh, monotheistic God? Yeah, monotheistic God. Now you'll say, oh, but the Christian God is not really monotheistic because they have the whole tripod thing. No, I will. Okay, uh, you're insane. But the, but <laughs> but it's but it's 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 close enough. That if it gets tweaked a little bit, it's already you know it's already the Jewish idea of God. No, you just still half a population on this planet doesn't have the same. Yes, that's true. That, that that that's true. But that idea of the world that knows God, um, we're very close to it. Uh, and the idea of Mashiach, oh, Messiah, Messianic era is this kind of maturation of this world, where this world kind of reads, re- reaches a point where people recognize that God exists, they recognize uh, the Jewish people's role in contributing to that, and it's a certain degree of stability where the Jews are able to study Torah, and, and there's, no, there's, no, um, there's no hindrances to that. So it's basically, we can exist in our land, going back to Israel, like we're already there, you know, we're already 6 million Jews in Israel. <laughs> if we told you this 100 years ago, you, would, you, would, you, would, you wouldn't believe me if I told you there'd be 6 million Jews living in Israel and having a sovereign state now, right? It's already beginning kind of all the, you know, the different puzzle pieces are, you know, are getting kind of assembled. We're not quite there, but uh, we're almost there. Yeah, so yes. It's getting to know, you know, the roots and everything, going back. Like, yeah, so I think it is It is a process. Uh, we also believe that Mashiach, the idea, could happen overnight. You know, it could happen very fast. It could happen remarkably fast. Um, but I, I think we look at the, you know, just at the situation, the way it is today, and the Jewish people, the way they are today, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense to us how it, it could be developing. Yeah, and and uh, the Messianic era would be like the cleansing time where where everything will get to the point that, you know, we're ready to receive the world to come, right? Or, so could it be that way? You know? or, it could be. And now, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying. I, you know, we have a, um, we have this um, tradition, called tradition, I don't know if it's, if it's explicit anywhere, that if you look at the works of Maimonides, it's written in, in conceptual order. 
like from most important to least important. You know, what's the first thing Maimonides discusses? Believing in God, foundations of Torah. He spends the first chapter basically dealing with Jewish theology. First four chapters. And he goes on to believe in, in you know, and then he talks about the laws of, of character and the laws of Torah. Basically dealing with tshuva, repentance, right? Uh, living, a, you know, believing in, a, in you know, in, in this, this one God and not believing in any other gods. That's basically the beginning of Maimonides. If you fast forward all, all the way to the end, the last two chapters and all the Maimonides out of the thousand chapters of Maimonides, the last thing is talking about Mashiach. So I always put this as uh, kind of basically Maimonides telling us that this is not so important. And it's, he himself writes it. He says, listen, don't spend too much time in it because you, we don't know. We don't know what's going to be and it's not really relevant to us. Huh? <laughs> it ain't oh, oh! It, but it's already happening in some measure, you know. You could have said a hundred years ago the Jews going back to Israel is foretold in the Torah. It's never happened. You know, a nation exiled from the land, reestablishing sovereignty in their ancestral homeland. It has that ever happened? It also, never happened. But it was predicted in the Torah, and it happened. So, you know, a lot, a lot of these. So, how far is it? How far are they from actually, um, you know? kind of clearing away Temple Mount and building a temple and kind of, you know, telling the world that we're here, we're here to stay. It's not so far. If it's, we, can't, we can't imagine in the next 50 years it could happen. Could happen. And people are finding out they're Jewish and they didn't realize it's from other ancestors and they're connecting back to Yeah, a lot. And we, 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 there's been a tremendous influx um, to the Jewish people, like almost like, like never before, like over the past 1,000 years. Today, like converts are, are just flooding to the Jewish people um, from... From everywhere, uh, it's tremendous. Either way, I found out the, the nonsensical part of the, uh, the other, these other religions. Uh, they see what the truth is. It's coming out. The Jewish religion. Yeah, I think so. And then I think there are people like myself, and I think others too, that are just Spanish lost Spanish Jews, Jews that went off into other cultures and other people, and you know, through the generations, converted to Christianity and got lost, and then come back. You can, you can, you can, in your particular instance, you can trace back to that? Or um, I, well, mine, mine has um, an infant adoption intermingled, which makes it complicated. Um, as far as marriage and birth certificates, I can take my mother's father's family into Mexico, and then I can take their names, and I can link their names to family names on synagogue rolls in Spain. And then I've also done Someone DNA the, testing. Someone did the and research. when I look... Um, basically, when I did DNA testing, I was at, he did it too, went into a database that hooked me up with currently living relatives who share my DNA. And you can, self, you can self-identify what your religion is. And basically, my relatives who live in Spain and Portugal are Jewish. My relatives who live in Mexico are Catholic and Jewish. And my relatives in the U.S. are everything in the world. So it's kind of, you know, I don't have birth certificates taking my family line specifically back to a Jewish family in Spain, but I've got lots of circumstantial evidence, and so I converted. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you did some Ancestry.com. Years. years. Yeah. yeah, wow, fantastic. Yeah. Did the uh, DNA well, testing. Ancestry, no, well, it's no, like 23andMe. I did my DNA testing through 23andMe, 23 23 and, and, and me, then yeah. the... Um, 
the paper trail basically is working with my grandfather's adoption records and Ancestry.com and family trees built by relatives I found through 23andMe. And uh, the Mormons actually have gigantic databases. Like the Mormons are making it their job to pull um, birth, death, and marriage records from all over the world and digitize them, and they're available for free. And so that's where I'm getting most of my stuff from Mexico. Cool. But it's an issue of going page oh, so by page. So your Mexican paperwork is coming from Salt Lake City. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I'm, I yeah, mean, the that's, Mormons, that's, basically that's, the Mormons that's are digitizing um, Mexican records, and they're into um, they're well into the 1800s now. So Very why interesting. Mor- why are they good? I mean, Mormons... Because they need to know... The, Mor- the Mormons... The no, Mormons they need to know your ancestry, so retroactively convert them, right? Right, yeah. yeah. The Mormons believe that you can baptize a dead person and oh. get them into heaven. And so they want to be able to find all the relatives. I got you. Make- you know, there was a big hullabaloo about that recently. Because they did Anne yeah. Frank. Yeah, they were yeah. posthumously converting all these people. Yeah. Nonsense. Either way, the records are nice and they're free. So, uh, <laughs> you don't care about Anne, but yeah. the means are useful, right? Yeah. That's uh, but, um, fascinating. But I think the, the Messiah question there's a phrase that people can somebody is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And, and I think that's kind of a useful way for looking at how much emphasis you should put on worrying about the Messiah because we don't have enough evidence to draw any it's, like, it's serious not, conclusions. It's a great thing to think about, yeah, but, but I'm it's saying, not going to impact your daily my, life. Maimonides and tells so, us, listen, this is a belief that we it. have. Yeah. It's been part of the Jewish philosophy and perspective for, for millennia. Mm-hmm. We believe it, but we don't know anything about it. Right. And there's so the, there's debate it. and uh, as to what actually changes, yeah. uh, and therefore it's not important, and it's the last thing I'm going to tell you about because you got to know it, but it's not that important. Yeah. You know? Well, it doesn't impact your and it's, life, it's so like, uh, it's remarkable because what's the second to last thing that he brings? Uh, the laws of, of Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Like what Gentiles need to know and the seven Noahide laws, etc. And this is a book written for Jews. I always say like, my mind is writing a book for Jews, and he's telling you it's more important for you to know what other people need to do than than uh, Gentiles need to do than, uh, than 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 the idea of Messiah. It's not so important. It's not so. Uh, it's you know it's important, but it's not. But it, it shouldn't make a, a, pr- a practical difference in how you live your life. You know because you don't really you don't really uh, you know you have to do what you need to do in this world. You know to make sure that you're doing your job. So that's, so that's what we talk about, Messiah. We talk about uh, this Olam Haba. It seems like it's some future world, not necessarily on planet Earth. Um, soulful world. I don't know where it exists. Or maybe Does it need to exist? I don't know. Does it need to exist in a place? I don't know. I have no idea how it works. Okay. Um, I'm saying it's not what happens after you die. But, there, but, there's, but there's discussion of the resurrection, which I know goes into yes. a yes. bunch of stuff. So yes. that, that happens... It seems like it's afterwards. Okay. You're right. Okay. Uh, this world, next world, uh, this world, messianic era, uh, resurrection, next world. We also have this another thing called La Asid Lavo in the future, which is a, a un, you know, undefined future. Bernie, what, what's not that funny? <laughs> it's not funny. No, I'm, I'm just uh, very cynical. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing yeah, but remember, remember, the Torah has never been proven wrong. Never. And it made such bold predictions. It went out of its way to say things that are so incredibly unlikely to have happened. And it, and, and it recounts, it has, it has um, accounts 
uh, documented in documented accounts of people witnessing fantastic things, uh, you know, and those like like for example the manna falling from heaven, right? According to the book, you just read the book, the Jews consumed manna for forty years. How many people? Millions of people. Oh, did this happen or not? Well, those same people got the book, right? Moses delivers the book to them. They subsequently observe the whole Torah, right? Why would they observe the Torah for what if it was all bunk? Right? Well, except you know, they say that Moses in 1400 or so BCE. Yes. Okay. And then we have here he's written out he knew how to write. Writing occurred way before that. Then the Bible or the Torah wasn't really written. Until around five or six hundred BC. Oh, what come on! Eight hundred years. Come on! It changed. Other people wrote this. Oh, don't. Oh, there's. Don't what? Uh, okay, like this. <laughs> okay, we got. We, this is funny because the first time I uh, I gave a class here, we got into the argument. Uh, what was the guy's name? Neil. 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 Norm. 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 So we got sidetracked with the whole documentary hypothesis thing. Okay, so we could, you know, we could argue, you know, there's some, the, the, the textual evidence presented by German scholars who learned Hebrew when they were 20, uh, with totally discounting any of the traditional Jewish perspective or any of the uh, Jewish literature outside the book itself. Uh, they they want to say that there's multiple authors, there's different names. Uh, that's a bunch of baloney. Come on. Uh, that, that's... Let's assume that there's some textual uh, inconsistencies. Let's assume that's true. Um, the Torah still makes predictions that are so remarkable and one of a kind and have come true. You know, that, that, that alone should be enough. Forget about the textual. I'm saying that's, that, that's an argument that we can have. Uh, we can't really settle it here today because... Um, but let's, let's say there are some uh, textual inconsistencies. But every single one of them has been answered by the Talmud. It's just... The scholars say we're not looking at the Talmud; we're looking at the book as a single standalone document, and therefore we're going to tr- and we're going to treat it like uh, you know like any other book, and therefore we're going to say, oh, there's some sort of this. It says the different names of God, it repeats various stories. Well, you open the Talmud, it says, well, it says the story again for this purpose. You know, they totally discredit, they totally even look at it. You know, and a few basic principles that every fourth grade kid in Israel knows, they reject it, like the idea of the Torah being nonlinear or not uh, not chronological. So if it says, oh, Abraham's father died, when, and, and then afterwards it says that Abraham uh, was 75, but wait a minute, according to the age, yeah, it, it claims that there's basic mathematical problems because it doesn't understand that the Torah is not, 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 was never intended to be accepted as chronological. So, but besides for that, the Torah, let's see, for example, uh, makes a prediction that Jewish people will, will always remain few in number, uh, will be exiled from the land, will be scattered through the nation, will come back to Israel. That has happened in human history a grand total of twice. Once, when the Jews were exiled after the first temple was destroyed, and once, this century, right? It's ha- Why? Because there's patterns. When, when nations get uh, conquered, and they get either swallowed up or they disappear. And it's happened thousands of times. That has happened thousands of times. Where there's assimilation, there's the melting pot, and they disappear. They lose their distinct identity. The Torah says that Jewish people will always stay around. They'll always be small, a small number. They won't overwhelm their conquer, you know, anyone else. Always be, um, always be uh, 
uh, face uh, um, hatred and anti-Semitism and marginalization, and that's also been true, yet we'll survive and come back to Israel and we establish a state. Like, that's a prediction the Torah makes that no one could deny whatever you make all the textual uh, analyses. It's a, it's a prediction made at least 2,200 years ago because then we know for sure that the Torah is that old because it was translated to, not, to secular hands, right? And then it happened. And we see today with the gift of retrospect that it actually happened. So that's something to me that if you have an ancient book that according to what it's, it itself says, it, you know, uh, if uh, it says that it was delivered to the people that saw Moses, that's what it says. Moses gave them the Torah, right? And it's remarkable that it makes these predictions. That's just one prediction that it makes, but it makes multiple predictions that have come uh, have come true, totally, and we can see it today, right? It's it's. I think it's it's. I think it's uh, it's short sighted to just uh, to you know to just discredit it because some German scholar in the 1870s said, "Oh, it says the name of God is Elohim and the name of God is, as 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 uh, as the uh, the tetragram. Oh, it must be those different authors merged together." I think it's a simplistic way of doing it, and also, I think that it's it kind of it's it undermines the whole religion. The second that it's of of <laughs> the second it's it's of it's of you know then what are we, why are we living as Jews? You know, it's just it's just the works of some men who came up with it, and maybe very intelligent men, but they came up with it, and uh, you know why should we follow their word? Why does their word have any validity? Yeah, so I can't, I can't but if you actually if you actually analyze and you uh, investigate and you ponder the evidence, it's remarkable. Okay. You know, it's remarkable. And I think the only way for it to actually not be true is that you have these the most, some of the most brilliant people on the planet. Because anyway, you slice it, the Torah is just way ahead of its time in being a systemized, uh, structured way of living. Of, it, it's, it's, it's a work that has not been matched yet. And... Even if it was written in the fifth century BC, uh, before the common, even if it was, it was written by, you know, the most brilliant or one of the most brilliant a collection of the most brilliant people around, because it, it is the greatest, uh, you know, uh, law systemized well, systemizer. I don't, think, I don't so agree with, with that it was written by all these, you know, scholars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My issue is that God speaking to Moses gave the thing, and they, really, you know, he. Told just before he died, he gave all this stuff. It's yeah. a nice story. Yeah, but remember, it's, <laughs> it's, and it's also, this is another important point. We're the only religion that is based upon a national revelation. Every other religion starts off as one man claiming to have some sort of divine divine inspiration, divine uh, uh, connection. Connection. Right? Prophecy. Every single religion starts the same way. Right? Our religion says that there were three million people. Depends how you learn three million. Because it says 603,500 adult males in the age of 20 and 60. So you assume it's at least 2 million people that experience with their own eyes. They all saw it. It's repeated multiple times in the Torah. And, it's, and it, the Torah even itself says another great prediction from the, from, from the Torah. Where it says that no other religion will ever claim to have the formation of, of their religion to be similar to ours. So that's, I'm saying these are enough remarkable things that at least make you question what, what you read in some book that, uh, that says uh, that, oh, of course, of course the Torah is a bunch of nonsense, you know? Well, no, I didn't say that. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming, you know? 
Yes. Maybe a class on incentives. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about what you said about the world and the sun and the. Um, yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's what we started. Yeah, okay, let's let. Yeah, let's yeah, my let's about one second. But, yes. Okay. Okay. Let's let's go. Let's go. So let us let us start with these three things. So we have this. We have this this idea of a world to come. We don't know much about it. We know that it's a spiritual world. That's what we know about it. It's a world of, of having spiritual pleasures, spiritual delights. It's beyond our capacity. There's three things in this world that are a measure of it. What's the first thing? Shabbos. So what I found, just uh, as kind of a way to follow up with Dan's question, when we started off, when we started off the history discussions, we said... The Talmud said that this world is 6,000 years. That's it. There's an end point. We count from Adam, what happened before Adam. Why don't we get a discussion about that? Uh, it might have been 13 billion years, whatever. From Adam was when we start counting history. And from Adam till 6,000 years is what, that's when this world exists for. Right? It doesn't go beyond that. We have a time, by the way. Our, uh, our, uh, our um, claim is it could be means tested. You know, we have an end point. We know that that it cannot exist past the, in its current uh, form past the year six thousand. We're also told that every day of God, every day of God, equals a thousand years. It's a verse in, in Psalms. There are those that claim that if you take a look at the six days of creation, each one of those six days corresponds to a thousand years. And the Shabbos, well, that's the next world. That's the next world. There's this world, and then there's the next world. The idea being that there's some sort of parallel, but not only just in 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 in, uh, in the ideas, but also in the structure between the uh, six six kind of ordinary versus one special, one uh, otherworldly, one supernatural. But what about Shabbos? Is what, what about Shabbos that we could experience today? So we find a verse, uh, we find a statement that says as follows: What this means is like this: He who toils before Shabbos gets to eat, consume on Shabbos. But if someone doesn't prepare for Shabbos, what is he going to eat? In Shabbos? What is he going to eat in Shabbos? The idea being, we know that if anyone who anyone observes Shabbos today, you know that there's a, there's an end point. There's a that you Shabbos starts at five oh eight. Everything has to be ready for the entire Shabbos before 5 away. You have to have all your food ready. The house has to be perfectly clean. Everything has to be ready. You've got to have the hot water prepared. You've got to have the candles prepared. You've got to be dressed for Shabbos, ready to go to the shul. shul. Everything has to be done. Right? It's a day of action. It's a, day of, uh, it's a hectic day. Uh, it's a day where you get, have to get everything done for Friday and for, Friday and, and, and for Saturday. Comes Shabbos. In a second, it, it changes. Suddenly, it's all about consuming. Everything, all the hard work that you did on Friday... You're able to experience that on Shabbos. The change that happens between Friday and Shabbos is Friday the day of action, of working. Shabbos is the day of consumption. Shabbos is the day of enjoying the fruits of of of, uh, of of your work. We're told also, additionally, the world to come is not a world where you can do any mitzvahs. Right? You cannot do any mitzvahs. You can't. Only in this world you can do. This is the world of work. This is where you work. This is where you accomplish. The second that change happens from this world to the next world, it's about consuming. 
whatever you did, whatever work you did, whatever toil you invested, that's what you have. Right? If you didn't take care of making hot soup, you don't have any hot soup for Shabbos. You don't have that corresponding spiritual reality for Shabbos. So yes, Shabbos presents to us, if you experience the whole process from going from Friday to Shabbos, you experience what basically happens on the spiritual sense. This world is a world which we are told in the, in the Mishnah, in, in Pirkei Avot, the Mishnah says, uh, in Chapters of the Fathers, the, uh, this world to natural is like a corridor to, to a hall. Uh, a hall as in a ballroom versus a hall as in a corridor. <laughs> this world to natural. Halat Mazet is comparable to a pathway to next world. Right? We're here to get there. Whatever we invest here, we're able to consume there. That's the idea. So yes, there is some sort of parallel because just like we have this change between preparing, working, and consuming between Friday and Shabbos, we have that same thing between this world. This world and next world has the same uh, modality. It's about work here. It's about uh, it's about sweat here. It's about doing as many businesses as you can. It's about preparing yourself uh, for all, uh, for all the spiritual uh, goodness that you could possibly accomplish. Next world is where is, is where you enjoy that. Whatever you prepare, that's where you're able to consume. Now. In our view, we look at reward very differently the way, than the way Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, philosophy looks at it. We look at, you know, if someone gets a really good, you know, uh, someone gets an A. You tell a kid, yeah, you get an A, you get a lollipop, you get a bicycle, you get a, I don't know, an iPad. Right? That, that's the way we view things. It's like you do this, and then you get that. The Torah is telling us that our actions in this world are rewarded in that world. However, the reward is very similar to what happens between Friday and Shabbos. Right? When you eat your food Friday night that you prepare on Friday afternoon, is it a reward? Is it like something, a lollipop that you would give someone to give for, for getting the A? No. You're, actually, you're just consuming what you prepared. The idea being that our mitzvahs is like our preparation of a food that we consume. We consume the actual thing that means the there is no disconnect between the action that brings about the reward and the reward itself. The reward, in fact, is the consuming of their of their action. We're told many times that uh, doing a mitzvah creates a certain spiritual reality that can be consumed in a world where all you have is uh, uh, all you have is uh, is is spiritual. Um, uh, 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 a spirit, you only have a spiritual life, so therefore all you consume is spirituality as well. So, uh, so that's uh, so that's that. We're told uh, additionally back to Perkei Avot. Uh, I'll say this really quickly because I want to be uh, I want to finish everything. So, uh, you know, I'll skip it. Let's go to the next thing. Um, oh, no, the sun. I have another idea here. So we have this idea of preparing and consuming. We have another idea that I like to call it's experiential. What, what do Maimonides tell us? You want to know what Lama Ba is? Right? You're a blind person. It's color. Right? <laughs> unless you've experienced it, unless you've experienced it, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know? And people talk about Shabbos. Like, oh, Shabbos. Okay, so what are we doing here? We're refraining from 39 categories of work for 25 hours. That's what it is. And that sounds very bland. It sounds like, like we're... like. Where is their meaning in that? What's the meaning? Like, how, how does that work? You, 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 you know, you could talk about it. You, you, you could describe it, but what does that mean? Like, how, how is there any meaning for it? How do people, 
who observe it, how, why do they swear by it? You know, what does it mean? They, they mean unless you've experienced it, you don't understand it. In Judaism, typically, where a uh, this is my perspective. Others might argue. Chas, the Hasidic movement probably would disagree with what I'm saying right now. We're a intelligence first, understanding something first, brain first, heart second kind of religion. We're very much based upon understanding. Ration, we, you know, we're very rational. We try to understand things. Right? It has to make sense for us. It has to be reasonable uh, for us. Uh, if it makes sense, if it's logical, then we, then, you know, then, then we can proceed to try to you know, feel it. Shabbos, everything turns upside down. There's no way to understand it unless you experience it. You know? If I gave you a cookie, I say, this cookie is the best cookie around. It's very moist. Uh, it's it's very sweet, it's very crunchy, and you say, oh wow, uh, you know, I, I want to experience that. So there's two ways you can actually go about experiencing that. You can either you know take it, make a bracha, and eat it. Right, that's one way you can that's one way you can experience it. Or you can send it to your friend who has a laboratory, and tell him I want you to take a. Uh, uh, when you take, a, um, uh, take the thing and chop it up and analyze it and do tests on it, and, you know, and, then, and then after four hours of, of work, I'll say, listen, I, I, I measured it. Right? And this is what it is. It's, it's, it's sweet, it's crunchy, it's, it's, right, it's creamy, whatever. There's two ways to do that. Right? What's the, obviously the preferable way? To taste it, yeah, right? to experience it. Shabbos is like that cookie. I can, we can talk about all the laws of Shabbos, and we can get to very, very minute aspects of very particular laws. And the Book of Shabbos is a fantastic book, 156 pages. Each page is just replete with laws and laws and laws and laws of perspective. Or we can try to experience it. The 156 pages, this is Maimonides? No, 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 no. The Book of the Talmud. Oh, the Talmud. The Talmud, yes. And it, it's a certain thing that we're told, that it's like Olam if you really want to understand it, you have to experience. So, in a way, the connection that we're making to Shabbos and Olam Haba, uh, the first thing that we said was that we're learning about, more about Olam Haba. Now we're learning more about Shabbos, right? More, right? Because now we know that um, it's still so funny. I can't handle it. It's crazy. Keep going. Don't look. At I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now we know that uh, that Shabbos. Is uh, is something that is kind of similar to Lama because we don't really understand unless you've experienced it, and you've talked to people who have experienced it, and then they get it. You know? There's a great story brought down in the Talmud again, also from the Book of Shabbos, where it talks about this um, this uh, uh, Roman Talmud has a lot, of, a lot of stories about Romans because that's when the Rome the Romans were dominating the world at the time it was written. So a lot of the rabbis have personal experiences with them. Um, like when we were told m- multiple times about the relationship that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, had with uh, with uh, with Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. He's called Antoninus. And Romans are called in the Talmud because Antonin- Antoninus. So here it tells a story about one of this one Roman who came to um, one of the rabbis and said, "How come the uh, the aroma the aroma of Shabbos food is so fantastic?" So he said to him, "We have a special spice it's called Shabbos." He says, "Give it to me. Give it to me." He says it only works for those who observe the Shabbos. Only if you observe the Shabbos could you actually have that special sense. The idea being that even to the food of Shabbos, there's this certain undefinable quality that Shabbos contributes that makes the food taste so good. 
and he kind of tr- you you know if you the, the famous uh, has anyone anyone here ever tasted chalant? Mm-hmm. What chalant? You tasted yeah. it? Yeah, I made it. You made it. <laughs> what is it? It's it's oh. like the stew. It's this chal. It's a Shabbos. That's a Shabbos. Too. In fact, it's it's been a tradition to make to make chal. It's a Jewish tradition. Uh, basically, what it is, uh, Dave's going to look here. It's it's like it's it's potatoes and beans and meat and barley and spices and yeah whatever. And it's put on a slow cooker and. Sounds, yeah. uh, the word sounded like the, the wool and linen thing. Shotness. <laughs> <Shotness. laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> now, the reason why, by the way, it's actually brought down a Jewish law that we're supposed to have hot food on Shabbos because we talked about the we talked about the Sadducees. Remember we talked about the Sadducees last time? The Tzedokim Sadducees? I don't know. Did we, get, no. we didn't talk about that. We talked about Oh, the Karaites. The so these were people that taught that, that, that they sit in the dark exactly and they don't have any hot food because they take the words of the Torah literally and they reject any oral interpretation. Therefore, they say don't have any fire on Shabbos. So no, they don't know heat, no electricity, no hot foods. So kind of to basically to show that we don't believe that, that if you put the food, put the light on before Shabbos, or you put the food on before Shabbos, you're allowed to eat it. That's why there's been, uh, been a tradition that has been brought, recount, uh, brought down a Jewish law where you, have, you should eat hot food on Shabbos. Hence the chant. But if you try to make that on a Tuesday, it doesn't, have the same, like, it doesn't taste the same on a Tuesday. It just doesn't. It doesn't have that special Shabbos flavor. It doesn't have it. You know? And is there words to describe it? I don't know. I don't know if there's any way. It's kind of an experience. So you're trying to ascribe... You're going to have and you yearn and you maybe those that complete the whole Sabbath, they yearn to have, they look forward to it, that smells... With the smell of the food? Yeah. Why would the food smell different on Tuesday than it does on Shabbos? Because there's this spice that we're told about. Because you're you're in that... Maybe, uh, maybe, or we can try to understand that. Or, or yes, there's something I think the that we. Turkey sound tastes better on Thanksgiving. Yeah, it, it, it's a good point. <laughs> well, there is another mystery. Why does a Reuben sandwich taste better yeah. in Brooklyn than in, in Houston, right? Well, maybe it's better. Uh, well, you know, some I was. We were in uh, Keystone, South Dakota, and the guy loved this kosher corby, but it was a fantastic Reuben this guy made. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's another one about Shabbos. Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna get to the sun. We will get to the end of it. I guarantee it. I want to know about bowel movements. Yeah. Okay. So we said this is the thir- a third way I, that I, I came up with understanding this. Perhaps is that we're told uh, we 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 describe. That spiritual activities fill out character, a character for us. Like for us, we're bodies first and souls second. You know, I, I want to describe this as, you know, the, the soul, the soul is the, the soul's in the, you know, the body. I'm sorry, is in the driver's seat. And where's the soul? Where's the soul? Daniel, where's the soul? The soul is like in the trunk, like in the first scene of Goodfellas. It's like in the trunk there. <laughs> That's where the soul is for us. The soul, like, it doesn't really, like, we don't, we don't, feel, it doesn't resonate within within us. In the world to come, everything's flipped about. The body is, is not a, is a non-factor, it's a different the soul, the soul's in the driver's seat. So is there any kind of experience that we could have that we kind of feel a, a soul first, basically? Like what is it like where spiritual activities are our basically gut reaction, our you know, our sensory uh, uh, relationship? Now, there is this there is this uh, there is this statement that's very famous that talks about Shabbos having a neshamis, an extra soul. 
Anyone heard that? Neshama Yitira, extra soul. What does that mean? So I always thought it meant that it's, well, you got two souls now. You got special two souls. It's, I, I don't know. What does it mean, two souls? You're more alive? I, I don't know what that means. So I actually found the source, and the source, it says that it, what it means to have two souls, that someone could eat as much food as they want on Shabbos and not get sick. Eat as much food as you want on Shabbos and not get sick. I think what it's telling us is that, well, but wait, how is that soul? Soul's not eating food? Like, what's the connection? What's the connection between having an extra soul and being able to eat a lot of food? I think what it's telling is that Shabbos creates this overlap, this interface between a spiritual and a physical world. If you look at the laws about Shabbat, it talks about that Shabbos is time where you're supposed to have pleasure. You're supposed to make these magnificent meals. You're supposed to take a nap on Shabbos afternoon. Uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, physical pleasures are highlighted on Shabbos. And those things are mitzvahs. And there's a mitzvah to make a lavish, to drink wine on Shabbos is a mitzvah, to have a lavish meal, you're supposed to have, make sure you have meat, don't, have, don't go vegetarian, oh, not to vegetarian, but I didn't want me to get that discussion. I meant, don't say, I'll just have like a piece of pita and just kind of get away with it. It's supposed to make a feast. It's a time where our bodies are suddenly so super excited to do a mitzvah. It's this one time where we can get some sort of glimpse and insight what it means to love doing a mitzvah and feeling so natural. It's a natural, it's natural for us to say there's a four-course meal. Every Friday night is a four-course meal at my house. Four-course meal, who, who doesn't sign up for that? Everyone signs up for that. And it's spiritual. This is what it's like. That's, what, that's a kind of a window into what it's like where you have soul first. It's a time where doing a mitzvah seems very natural. It's suddenly it's not org, not shaking the lulav. Lulav, yes, it's spiritual. Our body doesn't feel it. We don't know what it's like to be spiritual first. What, it, what does it feel like to, to have a mitzvah be feel so natural until we get to Shabbos? Shabbos, you sit there. Oh, whoa, it's just everything looks so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Table's all set. We're told in the Talmud, you make sure you have to have a white tablecloth. It has to be royal. You gotta have everything. Not, you're free of the fresh challah. You, make, you drink the wine. You have you have the community, you have people over, you talk, you sing, you don't have your cell phones around. It's, it's just a transcendental experience. It's, it's awesome. And your body is, your, body is to- <laughs> your bodily is totally on board. And it's just, it's a way to experience what it's like, what's going to be like in the world to come, where spiritual activities feel very natural. Let's move on to the sun. I found, I found... Multiple times where, we're, where we have this connection between sun, the sun and the afterworld. For example, we're told, uh, this is from the Talmud and Sanhedrin, we're told that in the that when, in, uh, in Olam Abba, the light of the sun will be diminished. Why would the light of the sun be, be diminished? Because the light of the tzaditim, the light of the righteous, will outshine uh, the light of the sun, therefore, comparatively, the light, the light of the of the sun will be weaker. Not that it'll, it itself will be weaker, but compared comparatively, it won't be it won't be as bright. Additionally, we're told, as I told to Dan at the beginning here, Kolanavim, all the prophets prophesized for the days of of the Mashiach, but for Lama Ba, Ayin Lo Raata, an eye doesn't see it. Is there anything in this world that an eye cannot see? Yeah. 
yeah, there was a lot in the world that the eye couldn't see because you didn't have medical technology. You couldn't see the inner workings of the body. You didn't know what happened in the okay, brain. Okay, so let's say and right now. Like, and this is, like, I realize what I'm saying is not You're overthinking it, Andrea. I always do. <laughs> uh, but now there is, like, in this day and age, yeah. But, uh, you know. What like, is there that we can't see? It's a simple question. We can't see the feeling. Most of the world. No, like we can see. here right here, and I can't see outside. The sun. The sun's right there every day. And you go out and try to look at the sun. Try to look at the sun. You'll burn your eyes, exactly. The Almighty put the sun here. And it's there, and it's so part of our life. The sun stops shining for a second, we're all toast. Oh, actually, actually the opposite. We're not toast. (laughs) We're all frost. Um, But the sun is such a crucial part of how we exist here. And it's ever-present, and it's always there, and it keeps us, it keeps, it's exactly 93 million miles, more precisely 92.6 million miles away. If it was a few hundred, hundred miles closer, further away, you know, we'd have a very hard time having so much, you know, habitable uh, land. It's there, it's always there, yet we can't see it. And I can see it, and I cannot see it. The idea being that, yes, the, 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 uh, the, the reward and the pleasure of the world to come, it's beyond our scope. We cannot imagine what it's like. We're told in the, in the um, Mishnah that Dan once uh, quoted to me, right? It's better to have uh, one second of repentance and mitzvahs in this world than the whole world to come. And it's better to have one second of pleasure in the world to come than all this world. So, like, that's the... It's a, it's, it's a Mishnah. So this is a Mishnah. It says like this one second of this world is better than the whole next world. The one second of next world is better than the whole this world. That's what it says. And it seems to be, it seems to be, uh, it seems to be an oxymoronic exactly. And the answer is that this world for the for what the purpose of this world is of doing mitzvahs. Once you're dead, once you once right, once you're in next world, you don't have any other options. You can't you can't add any more mitzvahs to it. Right, one second of opportunity. Uh, equals the whole eternality of next world. You can never, you can never accomplish anymore. But one second of next world for what next world is all about, which is reward, reward and uh, and and punishment, uh, pleasure, cannot be matched by all the all the uh, all the pleasures in this world. So if you take all the pleasures of this world, all the steaks, all the Reuben sandwiches, everything, put it all together, it won't equal one second of pleasure in the world to come. It won't. Even in South Dakota. Even in South Dakota. <laughs> Even if it was kosher. <laughs> well, Reuben has got cheese on it. So what if, okay, so we've spent all this time talking about the superiority of soul and spiritual things over bodily things. It, well, superiority or, no, we said this, this well, world is superior because here's where we do mitzvahs. Right, yeah. So this world is infinitesimally more uh, superior to next world because here now we have opportunity. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So why is the third one so bodily? The poop versus sex. Like why? <laughs> why are we going to these big soul and spiritual things to this third very? Okay, because maybe it could teach us something. Thing. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's going to teach us something. <laughs> Another allegory. Uh, if you guys remember. <laughs> That's a form of creation. That's why. If well, you guys, well, yeah, like you've got, uh, you know, uh, if, Shabbos is, you know, commemorates creation. Sun, you know, nothing grows. There's no life without the light and warmth of the sun. And so you can see it being sex because sex is this act of creation. Poop theoretically is fertilizer, creation, but not fertilizer. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, yeah. now, I, now, guys, I want I want to make a disclaimer. 
I believe that there's legitimacy to every word you said. Okay. And I believe that there's so much more out there than what we are covering today. Like we're giving, I, I, I'm saying we're giving, we gave three uh, potential understandings as to why uh, Shabbos is compared to the world to come. We have uh, uh, two for the sun. Uh, I believe there's more. I, we have the whole thing about Moses. I'm going to skip that. Remember the face of Moses went the face of the sun. Moses had to wear a mask. In Exodus it says, and Moses was the one who basically was able to live a spiritual world while being ensconced in a physical body. We have other sources that talk about how the soul kind of wants to leave everybody, but somehow when Moses was about to die, we have this whole dialogue between his soul refusing to leave because Moses' soul was a more hospitable place. because Moses' body was because he had perfected his body. We're leaving that on the side. Let's move on to the last thing, Tashmish. And we said, and we said, if you, you the notes ahead, huh? Nice. If you look at the Talmud and you analyze it, there's probably 150 arguments or back and forths on every page. There's so much. There's so much debate and so much discussion. But almost never are we having debate as to the definition of a word. Why? Especially when the word itself is just Tashmish Nekavan. You could, could have just as easily said an extra word and taken out that extra 12 words of saying, which one is it? Is it this one? Is it that one? Well, it can't be that one because that makes you weak. It must be it's this one. Right? That whole thing must be it's part of the instruction. Must be that it's part of the instruction. Because otherwise it would have just very simply said Tashmish Nekavan and then you won't, have, you, you won't have any doubt as to which Tashmish we're talking about and you would know they're talking about poop versus the sexual intercourse. So I wanted to say like this. Uh, let's quote the Maimonides again. Maimonides uh, points out, uh, this is another quote from that same uh, treatise on reward and punishment. He says, We live in a, material wor- um, in a material world and therefore are able to achieve only inferior and discontinuous delights. Remember the words, the translation is not is that translation. But boys, it doesn't continue. Spiritual delights are eternal. They last forever. They never break off. Between these two kinds of delights, there is no similarity of any sort. If you examine all the pleasures of this world, and pleasure is a very important element of this world because it's the reason why this world exists. It's, it's, It's why humans exist. Everyone agrees that we're here to... Physiologically, we're wired to seek pleasure. We're pleasure seekers at heart, you know. If you examine all the pleasures that this world has to offer... They all share commonality. What's the commonality that they share? That they have causation. If you have the ice cream, it feels good. There's a certain pleasure of consuming ice cream or chocolate bars or whatever. Swimming in a swimming pool, right? There's a certain pleasure that you get. Now, if you have too much ice cream, you swim too much in the swimming pool, right? Then the pleasure wanes. It kind of, there's a certain amount, uh, you're kind of capped out. You have a limit. You could get a stomachache if you have too much food. Right, uh, physical pleasures kind of have these drawbacks. Many of them have a bad aftertaste. If you eat too much, eat too much, or, you know, you kind of uh, you have a bad aftertaste. It, ha- it can leave a bitter feeling behind. But all of them, all the physical pleasures, they share the fact that they have a cause. If you have, if you have when the cause is there, you feel good. When the ice cream is gone, you don't feel the pleasure anymore. It doesn't continue. You won't feel it tomorrow. You won't feel the next. You certainly won't feel it a month later. In, in, uh, in the world to come, we're told that these pleasures last forever. Souls, souls don't have uh, the same you know, 
clot that we have, and therefore they're able to to to, to last for what does it mean for, for us? We can't even imagine that. That's once again back to the whole color thing. We're blind people. We don't understand what it means to live in a world where uh, where where things things aren't consumed and they disappear. Right? The eternity that's beyond our our, our our. But that's where the world comes. Is there any pleasure in this world that can match that? Not in the quantity, right, in the degree of the pleasure, but in the nature and the kind of the style of the pleasure, where the pleasure kind of continues after the quote-unquote activity that brought about that pleasure. Like having a child. Well, we'll get to the having a child in a second. So as Thomas says, Tashmish. Well, initially. Oh, so it says Tashmish. What does that mean? Is it talking about intercourse? Well, that makes you weak. Must be the time of going to the bathroom. What's it saying there? It's saying that objectively we can argue that the pleasure of of intercourse supersedes that of going to the bathroom. I think it's a legitimate argument. But that's funny. Maybe it's poop because you're at least guaranteed satisfaction. <laughs> 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 Well, you guarantee, you're guaranteed repeats. <laughs> the other one, not so much. You will be satisfied by the That's funny. Uh, yeah, it's good to, good to laugh together, right? It's the only thing left to do. <laughs> so the Talmud says to us, it cannot be that we're talking about intercourse because it makes you weak afterwards. What's it telling us? It's not talking about the measure of pleasure. Remember, one second of the world to come supersedes all the pleasure of this world's combined. Of this world combined. What it's telling us is not about the measure of pleasure, it's talking about the, the kind of pleasure. And the kind of pleasure in this world, almost all of them share this thing where it makes you weak. Or at least, minimally, it, it, when the cause is there, then the effect is there. When the cause is gone, the effect is gone. There's but one tiny pleasure that we can, that we can highlight where you kind of feel better afterwards or the, continue, the good feeling kind of feels through. Like if someone really needs to go to the bathroom, like afterwards, like to have this relief and you kind of go, wow, you feel good for even though the cause of the pleasure uh, is no longer there. And that's the kind of just some sort of one millionth or kind of an insight, a measure, a tiny, a tiny similarity that we can find in this world between the, the, that uh, that kind of in some in some in some way, shape, or form uh, mirrors uh, the kind of experience we could have uh, in next world. Uh, when I started, when I first examined this uh, this piece of Talmud, I was like imagining someone like it was Shabbos or someone sitting in the sun and going to the bathroom. Like that, that's the ultimate, you know. You kind of have all three together. But what what it really <laughs> that's what. But what it really is telling us is that there's there's this idea. We don't know much about it. We know we don't know much about it. We know that we can't really examine it. It's like looking at the sun. But there's some sort of insights that we could gain, and if we spend the time, and we learn enough, we could gain, we could gain a certain un- understanding uh, into a little bit of the components of this idea. You asked about having kids. I want to argue uh, that certain pleasures are not a measure of the world to come, but they're actually experience of the world to come. The idea of having a, the pleasure of, ha- of having a child is a spiritual pleasure. It's not a physical pleasure that shares 
common aspects of a, of a, of a spiritual pleasure. Sure. It's a spiritual pleasure itself. Sure it is. When they move out, it's very physical. Yeah, very physical, yeah. It's very spiritual, too. We have a big group. All the kids are coming in here to do something at 11.30. So at 11.30, exactly? Yeah, probably. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, we could go to the sanctuary. 1129, yeah. Um, we could go to the sanctuary. I have a lot, uh, some more to say, and I also have a beautiful uh, idea that I uh, that I read from this week's parasha, this past week's parasha I want to share with you guys as well. Uh, you, guys want, you guys want to move there? Is that fine? Yeah, sure. sure. So, um, what I wanted to what I wanted to say was that I think having kids couldn't having kids, but kind of like rearing children and seeing them flourish. That uh, I think is not wouldn't really fit into the category. Yeah, someone someone said, "Hey, um, what about studying Torah?" And studying Torah, as we'll see, studying Torah, Maimonides writes. Now, Maimonides, in, in a different place, in the Book of Mitzvahs, he calls a certain method of studying Torah the greatest pleasure ever. And he uses the same verbiage as he uses for, uh, for when he talks about the world to come. What he's telling you is that there is ways to experience this in this world. But then you're experiencing the real thing. This particular piece of Talmud is talking about a measure of the world to come. It's something which is physical. Going to the bathroom is a physical thing, right? Shabbos, we do a lot of physical things. It, you know, it's, it's a mitzvah that has physical components to it. You know? And the pleasure of Shabbos could be you're eating chicken or you're eating soup or you're eating, you're eating meat or you're, you're taking a nap. You know? Those pleasures have a certain spiritual uh, flavor to it or a certain component that it shares with the world to come. So that's what, so that, and I remember I once, I once was, uh, was reading... Oh, gosh, I can't remember what it was. It was at least like ten years ago. I read in some in some in some book. Some guy was saying, I don't remember what he was saying exactly. I wish I could remember. I was trying to remember this. Racking my brain yesterday, trying to trying to remember this. But he had brought some proof, some conclusive proof from some text that having children or watching your children grow is is not a physical pleasure. It's a spiritual pleasure. A spiritual pleasure alone. I wish I could not remember everybody what. can have children, and not everybody chooses to get married. That's life. true. That's true. But it's a certain pleasure that, that parents know that to watch your kids succeed is a, is a, is right. a fantastic pleasure. That way, but that's right. Not everybody has of course. Of course. Um, yeah. But you're right. There's nothing physically pleasurable about raising a child. <laughs> because no, pain. I don't know. Yeah, I'm saying if before uh, she goes to bed, she comes and hugs you. And yeah, but that's a spiritual. Not, but have you know having a hug is. I'm saying. From your kid is, you know, it's not <laughs> physically gratifying. It's emotionally, maybe, yeah. you know, it's kind of like somehow. So, so we, so like I said, the, this Rambam in Maimonides, we talked about the the mitzvah of loving God, and he says, "I like this letter." Oh, could you hear me from there? Okay, so loving God. So he talks about. Uh, how do you love God? Now, remember, we have four chapters of Maimonides in theology. 
and he himself writes that this is a theme that theology is not something we're very good at as Jews. You know, defining God, and we don't spend a lot. The Christians talk a lot about that. Not the Jew, we don't have so much. You know, it's uh, yeah, God is, is is the reason for it all. But to understand God is beyond our, beyond our control. That's what, you know, we we don't, we don't even allow to say the four letter name of God. And I'll say it because we're talking about God Himself. God Himself is something beyond our, beyond our capacity. How are we supposed to love, love God? How, how how do you go about loving God? What do you do? Follow the Torah rules. Okay, that's an easy answer, but. What does that mean? I do what he says. How do you have an emotional relationship with an idea that you can't even fully understand? That's a problem. Yes, it is. It is. So Maimonides lays out a, a four-point uh, or four-part process. And he says, you have to think, you have to dwe- delve uh, until you uh, into one of three topics, either Torah or uh, mitzvahs, or creation, science, what we would call, right? which is either the kind of the intelligence of God, like the Torah, the, the instructions of God, or the handiwork of God. So think about it, but think about it deeply, delve in it, like, inv- like invest into it, invest time and energy and thought, until you have an insight, until you get it, until you, something clicks. And then you have what he calls the greatest level of pleasure possible. That's what he says. You have in this insight, and that's love of God. Like, love of God? Love of God is a deep, deep, deep appreciation of God's uh, uh, infinite wisdom. How do you do that? Right. You have to really invest. You have to think about something. You have to... Uh, uh, the word yisbonin means to, uh, is to... Uh, to delve into in a very deep love. Delve is not that's not deep enough. Even deeper. Think about. Uh, uh, I'll try the right. What's the right word? Introspect. Not really introspect. To delve, but to delve in a profound way until you have some sort of insight. Something clicks. You spend six months trying to figure out what this means. Right? You were bothered by this particular piece of Talmud or by this particular mitzvah or by this particular you know double helix, and you spent. Right, tons of time in your lab, and suddenly you get it, and you're like, "Whoa, this is so much more complex than we think." God is so much more. Whoa, you kind of like basically have appreciation of God's greatness, and that's an emo- incredible pleasure of, of of discovery. That and that that's that's what it means to love God, and that's the mandate of every one of us to love God. It's it's part of the Shema. You have to love you have to love God, because God demands of us. He says, "Listen, to understand God Himself, it's it's really beyond beyond our control." But God kind of created these avenues, multiple avenues. You have the Torah, you have science, you have the mitzvahs. These are what God tells us to do, or God shows us God's handiwork, and it's a way for us to appreciate Him. And that appreciation of God, we talk about enjoying the radiance of God. Remember we said, the Olam the world to come, it, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no anointing, there's no washing. It's just tzaddikim, righteous people sitting, and they're experiencing the pleasure of God. What does that mean? How do you, what does it mean experience? It's, it's a certain realization of the magnitude of the incredibleness of God. Well, and that's a tremendous pleasure, and it could be experienced in this world, and it, it was experienced by the people that got it, you know? If you invest 12 years into, into, into trying to find some sort of uh, problem in biology, you know, and you just invest, 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 and then you get it, a, a pleasure unmatched by any of the pleasure of this world. Why? Because that's the pleasure of experiencing God. And... I thought that there was a... Uh... Very vague around heaven. Well, it's going to be a new topic. Heaven between heaven and hell. That the 
concept, heaven or the afterlife or whatever. Yeah, I'm saying we don't know a lot about it. And I'm saying uh, one of the questions we asked at the beginning, I, I just remember the answer, is that all these things are not – doesn't say anywhere in the Torah, in the Bible, about the world to come. It uh, doesn't say anywhere in the Bible – in the Torah about Mashiach, but that's already brought down in, in the Bible itself. Like, we talk about those things. And I, I think it's 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 important um, – well, it's important for us to ask the question, well, if it's so fundamental, why is it not discussed? So, yes, is it fundamental? Maybe it's not so fundamental. Remember, Maimonides brings this laws of, of the Mashiach all the way at the end. Maybe it's not so important. Uh, or, one of the reasons presented uh, was that the Torah doesn't make any predictions that are uh, that are unverifiable. You know, I could tell you, oh, if, if you don't, uh, if you don't believe in JC, you're going to face eternal damnation. When you die, you'll be raked over the coals. Again and again, for eternity, right? That's something that no one, we can't, it's unprovable. And it's unfalsifiable. So no one will ever know if it's, so it's basically a way I can intimidate you because I could freak you out. Hey, hey, I'm nothing to lose, right? The Torah doesn't do that. None of the predictions in the Torah are unverifiable. None of them are about things that exist in some other world other than the world that we're in today and that we're obligated to keep the Torah in. The Torah makes predictions. It makes tons of predictions. All of them are here, here and now. Well, not necessarily now, but it, it, here on this world with our current uh, uh, repertoire of per- perception points. The Torah says, you go back to Israel because that happened on planet Earth, and we went back to Israel. And now we can see that that came true. If the Torah told us everything that happened after you die, or all those things are, are, are it's, it's, it's a very weak tactic that, uh, or it could be a ta- weak tactic. Yes, it might be true. But still, we don't want to engage with that because those are things that are unverifiable. Unverifiable <laughs> and, unfo- and, and, and unfalsified, you can't make it false. You can't disprove it because no one has ever come back from the dead and tell us what actually happens. Well, you have those near-death experiences. <laughs> but we, no, one has, no one has come with great detail. Near-death. No one has had like death-death experiences. <laughs> right? So that's why we don't, we don't we, yeah, it's not so important for us, it's important a little bit. That's what we're told about it. But it's not so important for us uh, um, uh, in uh, in uh, respect to uh, or in comparison to other uh, other important things. Uh, but also, it's not predicting the Torah. It's not foretold in the Torah because it's not what we do. Uh, we don't just go around and make uh, these uh, bold, audacious predictions that'll freak people out and kind of compel them, kind of like kind of twist their arm to like observe the Torah whilst you get burned over the hot raked over the hot coals. Because that's not that's not that's not the way the Torah goes. The Torah makes predictions. All those things are logical and are planet Earth and are verifiable and falsifiable. But this pleasure of the world to come that can be experienced is real. And you talk to people that are uh, that invest their lives in ideas uh, in science. And they will tell you that there's nothing, there's no experience like the ones that they've had when they've had, finally had their breakthrough, their discovery, uh, after years and years of investing. But where was that pleasure from? It's a pleasure of discovery. It's a pleasure that, uh, that um, uh, envelops the person when they have an insight into God. Yes, is there insight? Does that really? Is that all that there is with all the with all the cosmos and the trillions and sextillions of stars and everything like that and the the 
trillions and trillions of atoms within us and cells. Of course, it's vast, vastly more complex than anything we can wrap our heads around. Someone mentioned the brain recently. Uh, someone quoted you brought about the brain. Yeah, the brain is something that we haven't even scratched the surface of understanding how it works. The complexity and all the neurons and all the interactions, like it's just wow, you know? But our little insight, when we have this idea, this, uh, this perception, this understanding of God, tremendous pleasure unmatched by any of the pleasures. With Torah, I know that there are people that will swear by this. You know, you see people that might, like my, my Rebbe in Israel, my teacher in Israel. So he gives the biggest Torah discourse uh, in the world right now, and probably in the last 2,000 years. You know, he has every day 7,000 students for an hour, an hour long 7, discourse. 000? 700 students, sorry. 700 students. Uh, now, what they're doing is they're studying Talmud on the deepest level possible, like for a minimum of like twelve hours a day. Like these are incredible scholars that are dedicating their lives to. You, if you walked into them, if you guys walked into one of these rooms, you've never seen anything like it in your life. You see, it's it's basically think of think of three thousand or maybe five thousand square feet, just massive room, and uh, benches that seat ten people. Two, uh, five groups of two. Each one has a stender. Stender is basically like a lectern. Think of like a lectern, but like just like that. Like it's very small. And just just like three feet between you and the next one, and they're just streaming on top of the lungs. If you walk in there, you're like this. What is going on here? It just it's just the highest level of of debate that exists, and it goes on for hours. Four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, and then two hours at night. Uh, so stream at the same time. At each other because they're arguing, they're debating. And they and they ah, and they spend so in pairs, right? yeah in pairs ah. and, and 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 they and they discuss a Talmud uh, they're, they're learning a particular piece of Talmud they do about ten pages uh, on, av- on the average is about eight pages uh, every five or five months basically so they do they're very slowly very intensely and you see people like they're talking to each other on top of their lungs. Like and they're and they're in the argument, they're debating and they're doing it for hours and they come back and it's Sunday and they know that off it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Friday half a day. And you're like, well, these people are really investing their lives. Very intelligent people. Very intelligent people. And they're their lives studying this ancient text. So what happens if say they agree on some passage? Yeah, maybe they agree. Maybe they maybe, so maybe they move on, right? Yeah. So you took you you spent Oh, I spent years and years and years in Yeshiva. And over the, in that particular, and that with well, one of them, yeah, that that one's the biggest one, and it's remarkable. You see some people there that have dedicated their lives to Torah study, and they could be, they're the happiest people you ever met. They, they don't, don't have, have to tons. Work. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. So maybe you know, so maybe they do work or whatever, or their wife works, but they don't live lives of luxury, and they don't have cars. And they take buses, and they and they and they live a very frugal life, but they have this pleasure that we can't even dream about like it's just so beyond and they're li- they're so much happier than we ever are well, they are in this country aren't a lot of them on welfare maybe well, yeah, i'm saying a lot of people i'm I mean, saying paying for those have similar institutions in, in, in america too like in huh? new york they have they have they have they have some there's in the tri-state area there's there's some of there's some of it yeah and it's it's growing but the my my, my point is my point is uh that um, you begrudge them because they're because you're you're paying for them. Is that it? 
Uh, well, no, I begrudge their wives. <laughs> their wives are doing all the work, and they're sitting around praying. Yes, I, I do. No, they're not praying. Not, not praying. Me, not, well, praying, studying. Deriving yeah. pleasure. Huh? That's what you want to say. Yeah, you're deriving pleasure. Highest level of pleasure. It's the highest level of pleasure. But the point is, is that the people won't do it with such, uh, with such gusto, with such dedication, unless it's really that fantastic. And it is, you know. The happiest people that I've met are the people, are the people that are just engaged in Torah study. Uh, yes, is it for everyone? Probably not. Is it uh, viable, sustainable, economic model for the entire nation? No, and it never was. Maimonides says that it's not all about that, you know. He, 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 he's, he was very much anti the whole idea of, of having someone pay for you to study. He writes that. He says that he goes on these diatribes. It's all, very rarely does Maimonides, the rational Maimonides, ever get, you know, get taken away, basically. But in several places, no, place number one is in the, in the book of, in his laws of Torah study. Place number two is in his commentary, in the Mishnah, in the, in the in chapter of the Fathers, where it says, don't make the Torah a crown to get honor from, or, or a axe, or a pit, or a hoe to dig with. And uh, he, 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 you know, he diatribe. He basically riles against these people that, or against the idea that people, someone says, someone says, someone else should pay for my, uh, for my, for my, for my, for my, for my scholarship. Uh, in the other place, that, uh, that, but then he says that those people that do dedicate their lives to Torah study, to spirituality, they're the heart of the nation, and they're someone that you should support. So yes, he kind of basically takes some kind of more even-handed approach by saying, yes, these are the people that are, are holding up the spiritual fort of the Jewish of the Jewish people. They're maintaining our ties with our with with our tradition. Yeah, and they're the scholars, and they're you know they're 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 the light of the nation. Uh, but he says, don't abuse it. Obviously. So the debate like in the Israel monks. now, when Israel was founded, was about three or four hundred people. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so ten, fifteen percent of the population. Uh, I don't know about Israel. that, but yes, in Israel, this is a big, a much bigger political it. issue, because uh, Ben Gurion made this uh, agreement. Uh, it, this exception for yeshiva students. There were five hundred, four, five hundred yeshiva students in all of Israel, and it was everyone was everyone was sure it would be dead, it would die. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's been uh, the death of Torah has been greatly exaggerated. You know, many many times, and uh, so they made this deal as part of the law where they're exempt from the army and whatever. Uh, and today, there's tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, and that's that's changing. Uh, but Either way, this pleasure is a, uh, as Maimonides writes, and it's experienced by people even today, uh, is something which is unmatched by anything. And uh, last quote that I'll pull from the, uh, uh, from the Maimonides, that treatise on reward and punishment, but if you want to read the thing it's in, in its entirety, it's a f- fantastic, fantastic read. Uh, it's fairly long, but it's bas- I have a copy of it in English. If anyone wants, just email me, ywillbeatorchweb.org, or... Uh, go to my website at rabbalby.com and send me a, uh, a message. So um, it's a fantastic read. But he uh, there he writes, there's a lesson that we'll quote from it, men who choose to purify themselves will reach this spiritual height. If you remember, he said earlier, yes, it's like color for a blind person. It's beyond the capacity. You only get it after great searching. There's a lot of work that you have to do to actually achieve this. But once you do that, You'll reach the spiritual height. They will neither experience bodily pleasure nor will they want them. 
there comes a point in time where if someone is so uh, has progressed so much in their spiritual pleasure life that the physical pleasure doesn't appeal to them at all, doesn't excite them at all. They will resemble a powerful king. He, turned, he would hardly want to go back to playing ball with children as he did before he became king. Can you imagine a king saying, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to play Game Boy. Uh, that, 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 that's exciting. You know? Once you kind of graduate to a high level, play, it doesn't excite you anymore. It doesn't. He would hardly want to go back to playing ball. Right? As it, such games attracted him when he was a child and he was unable to understand the real difference between playing ball and, and having uh, royalty. Like children... We now praise and glorify the delights of the body. That excites us. And we don't understand the delights of the soul. But if we do have this uh, heightened experience, uh, it's something that will change our lives probably. And we'll always want to be able to recapture that. And everything else will kind of lose their allure a little bit. That's like the, the born agains are having a, you know, all of a sudden a vocation. In Judaism, we don't believe in having uh, in in having just random revelations. It doesn't happen to anyone, you know. If someone wakes up, we talked about prophecy a little bit last last time we were here. Someone wakes up and decides, "Oh, I'm a prophet. God spoke to me." Unless they're at that level, you you don't you have to earn it. And uh, corresponding to the amount of effort invested in something, that's how much you're able to pull out of it. So we don't believe in just someone having prophecy overnight, or that doesn't happen. There's no such thing as a spiritual lottery. It's just whatever you work, whatever you invest, whatever, that's what you'll have. You know, there's no shortcuts. Well, there might be some shortcuts uh, actually. There might be some shortcuts. But usually, those people. But there's some provocation. I hear the shortcuts. Yeah, I know. Let's, yeah, let's do it. We'll put it in the next uh, in the winter schedule. Did spiritual you, shortcuts. There's usually provocation <laughs> that triggers this. Revelation or something. It's not just out of the blue. Some they woke up and said, "Oh yeah." Uh, well, yes. Um, something bad that happened. Something external. They might have external, like right. yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was hit by a bus, and thank God I survived. Right. Something like that, right? Yeah. That's not an inter- that's not an internal experience. No, right? Of course not. And yeah, that's that. I um I know we went off topic. Yes. Uh, but I I I think that the number one goal of the class was to kind of basically. Um, have like a, an example of what it's like to try to investigate and dissect the Talmud. You know, it says something that on the surface, if you read it, you would say, this is baloney. This is this doesn't make any sense. So, you know, there's so many problems, but when you investigate and you delve deeper, you see a lot of insights. You can basically, a lot of life lessons. Like, if we take this, what we learned today, and we can take each particular slice of wisdom that we try to, to learn, and it could be its own topic, there's so much just pushed in, but it's just concealed with this mask. And if you learn and you, and you kind of live with an idea, you could kind of slowly peel away and kind of gain the insight of, 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 of the lesson. And it could teach you a lot about, uh, about life and you know, try to maximize the pleasure. Yes? There's a verse in either Psalms or Proverbs, I think, and I'm about to misquote it, but says that it's, it's to the honor of God to conceal a thing and the glory of kings to seek it out. Something like that. That's about Makes it. sense. But I think, but that's really what it is. You know, like we started talking at the beginning of class about, you know, how the Talmud intentionally yeah. makes things a little bit confusing and about how we can, you know, A little bit. A lot of it confusing. A lot. Um, you know, and it makes me, you know, it, I remember my first year of law school, you know, your first year of law school is intentionally hard. And, uh, and my contracts professor on the very first day said... Trying to um, weed out. 
Well, he just, he basically said, let me just tell you right now, you're here to learn contracts in spite of me. And he was one of those teachers that made it intentionally difficult. And you know, something that could have been very clear and simple, chose to teach it in a way that was very confusing. That's exactly what the Talmud is doing. And I think it ties into that verse, is that, you know, it's the honor of God to conceal it. But if you take the time and effort to seek it out, then that's your glory. It's the glory of a king to try to figure mm -hmm. that mystery out. And it all goes together for me. I don't, I don't, I think this doesn't even make sense now that it's coming out of my mouth. No, it sounds like yes. Um, but yeah, but that's kind of the gist of it is, you know, you can go ahead and dig into this literature and it's not going to make sense. And there are going to be a lot of mysteries and things to, uh, to fight about, but it's the process of doing that that gives you that moment of insight that creates that love of God that my mom mm -hmm. was just Mm -hmm. It also goes yeah. back to what you said weeks ago, which is you only appreciate something if you work you for it, it. Yeah. a la the gumball machine doesn't work, you know, if it's just popped out yeah. in little nuggets. <laughs> I like to a nice callback to previous classes. But isn't <laughs> so there a common idea, like, between the Sabbath and um, the first thing you said, but that you need somebody else? To be, I mean, to experience the Sabbath, you can try to do it yourself, but the joy of sharing it and appreciating the soup or the cholent or whatever that's become, to do it alone isn't enough. Yeah, so, do it with other yeah, so there's the, the there's always the um, element of community. Of study, learning, Talmud. Yes. I mean, it's one thing, if I took a page up there, there's a book in front of me, the Talmud. If I tried to read it, read it I might yeah, gain so. something, but if I talk to you or talk to you or whoever, I'm doing it together, experience the Sabbath with somebody else, experience the book. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. You know, I actually had a, um, when I was uh, in in a yeshiva in Israel, so it was a kind of a different, it was structured as it kind of had all levels. It had like more advanced students and it had newcomers who knew nothing. So one day I was tasked with learning or talking to a guy who just walked in. And, you know, a lot of Jews in America, well, they had some sort of background. They went to day school, to Sunday school, to Solomon Schechter, something, you know. And this guy walked in and didn't know anything. He didn't know a single Hebrew letter, nothing. He didn't know anything, nothing. And he was a very intelligent guy, and I, we kind of hit it off really well. And the first day I said, okay, fine, you don't know how to read Hebrew. Let's, let's get the flashcards. And this is a very, very, very intelligent young man. And he was there with flashcards with me. So I was saying, this is an Aleph, and this, this is a sound of mate, and this is a Gimel, whatever. That's what I did with him, whatever. And he picked everything up like this. Picked but like this. was it the fact that he knew he was a Jew and that was it? Or yeah, he didn't he, even know he was a Jew? Yeah, he, he knew he was Jewish. Knew, didn't mean anything to him. Anything? Somehow he had some sort of uh, desire to come to Israel. He came to Israel, he found, ended up in the yeshiva. And he's like, I'm doing it. So he started learning more and more and more. And then it was the Passover time, so I was going back to visit my family, in, you know, in, in the East Coast. So I said to him, you know, there's another guy who was a little more advanced who had just finished an entire tract of the Talmud. I said, wow. why don't you guys learn together? I learned and finished this tract of the Talmud uh, over the break while I'm in New York. So they said, okay, fine. I'm like, okay, okay, I just did that, whatever. I went to New York. I forgot all about it. I come back. I'm like, oh, how you doing? Uh, you know, he's like, oh, by the way, we're almost finished. We have six pages to go. 
you know, these guys actually took my my idea seriously and actually sat down and they were learning like five hours a day together. And they the whole for the whole break when no one else was in yeshiva it was a you know Passover time everyone was off and they were just pounding away. They finished the whole thing and they did it. And now I just got a call from him actually on the phone. My brother called my brother called me. My brother lives is in yeshiva still. The older brother. And he tells me, do you know this guy named uh, Chaim Gamliel, which is Hebrew name? He's like, he's sitting next to me in the mirror. He's like, sitting next to me in like the yeshiva, like this advanced yeshiva. You know, and like just, you know, basically, not, over, not quite overnight, but over a couple of years, he became from someone who knows nothing to someone who's learning the most advanced, in the most advanced yeshiva in the world on the most advanced track. And he's just, he just, wow. just became like the lady from Rats to Riches. Um, over, I don't know, overnight, but over a couple of years. And that's remarkable, yes. But most people, yeah, most people that don't have a strong background, it's much, much harder to them to have this kind of uh, level of connection with, with, with Torah, of course. Um, but, you know, we value Torah study and mitzvah connection. Any little bit, whatever level, whatever degree, whatever someone's holding irrespective of their denomination, which is a bunch of nonsense. We don't believe. There's no, no, no politics in family. I don't believe in denominations. Um, affiliation, all that is, all that's nonsense, you know? It's, we're, we're Jews, we're family, we have a tremendous tradition, and whatever someone does is incredibly valuable and incredibly meaningful and something that they should cherish and something that I admire. Will everyone reach a level of advanced Talmud? Probably not. Does that mean we should just fold our cards and just go home? Also not. Anyhow, that's that. Thank right. you all for letting me go over by, time. By the way, uh, just to let you know, we are having class next week, even though there's no religious school, which means we won't have to be shuffled around. Fantastic. It's, uh, What's the topic? God and man, the delicate balancing act of faith and personal responsibility. Ooh, nice. Got to prepare Who comes the class. That was my suggestion. Very. Well, parents are observant. But then we're going to go back to yeah. history yeah. because we yeah. couldn't finish up. Just, uh, Standard Jews. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was Israeli. Well, 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 yeah. So then there will be no class th- the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Right. Then we'll do two more histories, try to hopefully wrap it up. And then the Sunday before. Uh, Christmas Day, we will have a class why, do, why Jews do not believe in Jesus. Nice. Yeah, but we have the Messianic seasonal. Jews who do believe in Jesus. So we have a seasonal <laughs> cup. Uh, the gala. Yes, and the gala. Gala is Wednesday night. So if uh, anyone doesn't have a seat, speak to Dan. Dan's, try, Dan's uh, arranging a third table. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I 